Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is David Meerman Scott. David is a marketing strategist, entrepreneur, and advisor to emerging companies, a VC strategic partner, and the best-selling author of 11 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR and Fanocracy. David, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Tats. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah. I remember reading the uh, new rules of marketing and PR, uh, I guess it was 12 years ago. I remember loving it. (laughs) Yeah, it came out, originally came out in 2007. So you must have read the, probably the first edition. Absolutely. I did. And it, it really sort of inspired me to sort of go into social media as a, as a viable sort of tool to sort of uh, push business forward. And, uh, I definitely, I know a lot of people that read that book at that time, and I think credit you for sort of getting them on that right, right track in terms of... Oh, thank, thank, you, for, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it was the first book that came out to describe the whole online world that we're living in right now. I was, I was able to see ahead of most people what was coming, and... I was writing it back in 2005 and 2006, and at that time, Facebook was only for students. Mm. Twitter didn't exist. YouTube had just started. I mainly spoke about things like blogs, and fortunately, the whole social media phenomenon built around it, around the book as it came out, so, so it worked out really well. And of course, since then, I've, I've updated it six more times. And next year, middle of the year, the seventh edition will come out. Wow. Great. Now, uh, tell me about uh, this new book. What inspired you to write Fanocracy? About five years ago, I started thinking really hard about the idea of fandom. And I'm a massive live music fan. I've been to 786 live concerts as of today. I actually, I actually keep a, a spreadsheet of the live concerts I've been to. I'm also a very passionate surfer. And I also am very passionate about the Apollo Lunar Program. I collect artifacts from the Apollo Program. And I even have a museum in my house. So I was thinking about this idea of fandom and how powerful it is when you're a fan of something, an idea, a product, a service, how you can spend a lot of money and you can, your best friends can be a part of the same fandom. And, and I got, this, got to thinking about how companies can tap into that fandom as well. And I started to talk to my daughter about it. Mm. She's now 26 years old, but when we first started to talk about it, she was 21, about to graduate from university, and and she went to Columbia and did a, a neuroscience degree. And she has very different fandoms from me. She's 
really, she goes to Comic-Con every year. She's very into Harry Potter. And I said to her, I said, Rico, what's up with the idea that I've been to 76 Grateful Dead concerts? I mean, isn't that crazy? And she goes, well, I've, I've written an 80,000-word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. That's kind of weird, too. And so we were talking about our own obsessions, our own fandoms. And we just decided then that we had the same idea of fandom, but we're completely different people because obviously different generation, obviously different gender. Her mother's Japanese, so she's mixed race. And she's a scientist, unlike me. And she has different fandoms than I do. So, But we had the same idea of what a fandom is. So we decided to collaborate and write the book together. And for the past five years, we've been researching and writing about this idea of fandom. And it's been really cool because at the same time that we started to write about this idea of fandom, we also started to feel like the whole promise of social media, of people connecting and everybody sharing and everyone living happily ever after, kind of didn't work out like we had thought back in the day, you know, and you and I and others who were into it really early. Mm -hmm. And it's become in many ways a dark place. There's lots of spam going on. There's people who are trying to steal things from you, your identity, your money, whatever it is. There's there's bots. You don't even know if the person you're engaging with on a social network is real or not. It could be a robot. And in the political world, it's incredibly polarizing in most countries, but certainly in my country. And people are trying to get you into partisan loops and and the, the algorithms on the different social networks and search engines based on what you've done before tend to target you into narrow niches and it's hard to break out of those. So so we decided that at the same time that we were excited about this idea of fandom, we were also seeing that the pendulum have swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when people are incredibly hungry for true human connections. So we believe that the idea of what we call a fanocracy or the idea of, of bringing people together to celebrate what, what they love, this is an idea that's really important for right now. So I'm pretty convinced that, that we've come up with an idea just like I did back in 2007 with the new rules of marketing and PR and this book in 2020 is hitting exactly the right notes, just like that book I wrote back in 2007 was. I know that was a really long answer tats to a very simple question, but (laughs) those are the things that, that led to the book. It was, it was perfect. And I agree with you. I had a chance to to go through it and I think it's going to have the, the same impact. I think, this type of book is definitely needed. Now, for, for the people that sort of sort of you got your initial description of what you were doing, how, how does that sort of concept relate to business? Like, what are some examples that you can sort of put in there on taking the personal and putting it into to business? Well, what we found is that in any business, it can be a consumer brand kind of business, a nonprofit a professional service, doctor, lawyer, things like that, and also B2B businesses. 
that the more you can create human connections, true human connections, the more powerful the emotional bond with your customers become. And that's especially true now when it's so easy to focus on electronic communications. Mm. It's so easy to use email and text messaging and, and social networking. And, and none of that's going away, but you don't have a chance to truly bond with people using those tools. So we looked very deeply into the neuroscience aspects of, of why people bond with other people and how an organization of any kind can create a powerful, what we call a fanocracy or a powerful group of people that become your fans. And one of my favorite examples is a company called HubSpot. They're mm -hmm. a, a software company. I happen to be on the board of advisors. I've been advising them since they started back in 2007. And they, they have been implementing many of the ideas that we now write about in this book, and they've created a massive fanocracy. They've created a massive group of people who love them. They started in 2006. When I joined them, there were only eight people and no customers. And today they're listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and they have about an $8 billion market cap, 65,000 customers. And early next month is their annual customer meeting. I speak at it every year. They get 25,000 people who pay their own way to come to Boston to their customer meeting. And I mean, I just think it's remarkable that a business in the B2B world is able to attract that many fans who come and want to celebrate with them at this particular event. And I can talk about some of the things that they've done specifically, but this idea of creating fans is something that any organization can do. It's not just reserved for something that you might think is in the world of fans, whether that's you know musicians or artists or movie stars or whatnot. Sure, they all have fans too, but absolutely companies can create fans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely love to hear some of the ex examples of what uh, HubSpot has done to sort of build up that massive sort of critical mass. Yeah, so, so one of the specific ideas that I think is so powerful is this idea of proximity. And these ideas were originally described by a neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall back in the 1950s. And, and what it focuses on is the idea of how close you are to another human being. And we humans can't help ourselves. We, we find that when we're close to another human being, our ancient brain takes over and we need to decide in our own mind, is this person who's nearby me a friend or a foe? Are they somebody who I know, who I, I can trust, or are they, are they a threat? We can't help it. Our brains do that no matter what we are, no matter who we are, our brains do that. And that's one of the reasons why when you're with people who you, you already know, you feel comfortable. And when you're in a crowded elevator or on a train or somewhere where people you don't know that you don't, that maybe you, you don't, you can't trust, you feel uncomfortable. So 
what that means, and there's different zones of proximity. There's what's called public space, which is further than 12, when you're further than 12 feet away from somebody else. There's so-called social space when you're between about four feet and about 12 feet away. There's then a personal space, which is about a foot and a half to four feet. So typical cocktail party distance. Mm. And then there's what's called intimate space, which is closer than a foot and a half, which is only reserved for family and very, very close friends and doesn't really apply in business. But if you're able to figure out ways that you can get into either the social space or even more importantly, the personal space of people who would be helpful to your market, whether that's your existing or potential customers or others, that's incredibly powerful. It's more powerful than we really might think because our ancient brain then takes over and says, this person who is nearby me is someone who I trust and who I'm comfortable with and who I like. And that generates incredibly powerful human emotions. Those are human emotions that we can't help ourselves. We are, they're incredibly powerful. And so what does that mean in practical, from a practical perspective? It means when you can take someone to lunch or meet them in their office, if your company doesn't have one already, create a physical meeting to bring existing and potential customers together somewhere or a series of meetings around the country or Invite people in to tour your factory with the CEO and the head of manufacturing. I mean, any of these ideas where you're bringing people physically close, either to you and your employees or bringing them physically close to other customers is terrifically powerful in a world today that's primarily done online. Now, there's another aspect of this that gets very interesting as well, which is the idea of mirror neurons, which is a version of proximity when you're not actually physically close to someone, but where either photos or video can be used to approximate proximity. And it turns out through something called mirror neurons that our brains trick ourselves into believing that somebody we see on video is actually close to us. And it can still can trigger those powerful emotions that says that I'm near somebody I trust and therefore I have strong emotional bond to them. That's why in some cases you feel like you know personally a movie star or a television star because you've seen them on TV, you trust them, you believe you know them. So what does that mean in a practical perspective for companies? What it means is that consider starting a YouTube channel, but a YouTube channel where there's lots of opportunities for people to be talking directly to the camera and have them framed in such a way as if those people feel like they're in our personal space, which is from one and a half to four feet away which is approximately the sort of distance that a television presenter would sit when you're looking at a TV news program. So I mentioned earlier HubSpot, they do all of these things. They have a customer meeting, an annual customer meeting here in the Boston area that I go to every year, 25,000 people will go this year. But they also have regional meetings and 
uh, lots of local meetings where their people are physically coming together. They have a very popular YouTube channel, and they also have something called HubSpot Academy. And HubSpot Academy is primarily video-based, where people from HubSpot as well as outsiders teach courses about about how to use their software and also um, general ideas in sales, marketing, and customer support, which is what their software does. But they teach it almost like university-level courses, but on video. So you feel like you're getting in people's proximity through those videos, and you're clearly, literally getting in people's proximity when you go to those physical meetings. And there's lots of good things HubSpot has done, but I'm convinced that this is one of the most powerful things that they've done to build fans. And if you look at any of their social feeds, you'll see, you can count the number of Twitter followers they have, for example. They have lots and lots and lots of fans. Wonderful. Those are great examples. Now, what about examples outside B2B? I always like to look at other industries and what they're doing. Is there anyone that sort of stands out that these companies are doing good or this company's doing great at this? Yeah, we have nine different ideas, and those are, those are different chapters, of different ways that companies can build what, what we call a fanocracy. So it's not just this idea of close proximity, although that's the one that I think is easiest for an organization to implement. I mean, you could begin implementing that right away. Another of the ideas that we talk about is give more than you have to. And this principle is the idea of the incredible power of giving things away for free with no expectation of something in return. Hmm. So what that means is don't treat everything as a transaction. Don't make some kind of free offer, but then demand something in return. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Many B2B companies have white papers and other content available on their website, and they say, free white paper. (laughs) Well, it's not free if you require an email address to download it. You're not giving something away for free. In fact, you're setting up an adversarial relationship with a potential customer if you demand that they give you an email address before you give them a white paper. So that's an example of something that is not giving something away for free with no expectation of something in return. I'll give you an example. You asked for a non-B2B company. Mm -hmm. Duracell is a battery company, famous battery company, and they have a program called Power Forward. And the Power Forward program, what they do is they travel to a place, a location that's been hit by a natural disaster. So it could be a a hurricane, a flood, a fire, a tornado, something like that, and for which the power has gone out. So they're a battery company. They're known for power. They power things. And the program is called Power Forward. So they go to these natural disaster areas where the power is out, and they give away free batteries. And they they don't give away and say, oh, you know, here's, a, here's a, some batteries and you got to buy something for me later. They just <laughs> give batteries away for free. And so when I interviewed them about how and why they do this, they said, look, we, we know that the demand for batteries spikes during a natural disaster because everybody is without power and they immediately want to power flashlights or radios or 
or whatever. And most of the time, people can't find batteries when they need them, or maybe they have only enough batteries to power the flashlight for one night, and then it goes dead. So also, batteries tend to sell out in such a situation. All the batteries at Home Depot or, or the local supermarket are gone within a few hours after one of these things. So what they do is they have a set of trucks that they load up with free batteries, and then they either drive or get airlifted to the places that they need to distribute batteries. And they were explaining that during Hurricane Maria, which hit the, Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, they actually worked with the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Association, FEMA, as well as the U.S. Air Force, and they loaded a set of these power-forward trucks onto cargo planes, flew them down to Puerto Rico, and they gave away 700 tons of free batteries. Wow. Yeah. And they were, some of these vehicles are four-wheel drive vehicles that they were able to get into very remote places. And, and the power was out for a very long time in, in some parts of Puerto Rico. And this is how people powered their lives, essentially. Now, I was, when I was inter the vice president of marketing, his name Ramon, when I was inter interviewing Ramon, I, I said, well, gosh, why wouldn't you get in that truck and sell batteries? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 700 tons of batteries. You'd think you could sell a whole lot of batteries. And he said, there's a lot of people who do sell batteries in such a situation, and they, they raise the price. They raise it to three or four or five times the normal price, and people will pay it because they need batteries. They need to, a flashlight at night because it's dark. And he said, we get so much goodwill by giving people these batteries for free in the time of need, and people remember it, and they become our fans. And he, I told him this word fanocracy. He goes, yeah, we're building a fanocracy in this way. And then a couple of months later, when they need to replace their batteries and they go to the local store, which brand are they going to pick? Mm. Even though we're a little bit more expensive, they're going to pick us. And so that's just one example of this idea of giving more than you have to, of, of giving people something with no expectation of something in return, but that will end up being an incredibly powerful thing for your brand over the coming years. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you do a lot of speaking, you travel a lot. In order to sort of stay organized and sort of stay sort of on top of things, what are some habits or routines that help you sort of stay, stay ahead of it? So my most important habit, I guess it is a habit and a routine, <laughs> is I exercise every day. And it's very important to me. It's kind of one of those non-negotiable things. So I probably will miss between one and three days a month. So that means I'm exercising between 28 and 31 days a month. And I only miss it if I have a very early airplane flight. Otherwise, I am exercising every day. Today, I, I did an hour of swimming. Yesterday, I did an hour of yoga. And I've got a home gym. But when I'm on the road, I actually bring a yoga mat with me. So mm -hmm. I'll do my yoga in my, in my room. And then if they have a gym, I'll go down and do weights or something. And if they have a pool, which I love, I'll swim some laps. And 
it just uh, that grounds me. It, it gets my brain working. It, it's something I look forward to. It's I don't listen to music or watch television or anything. It's as much silence as I can get, which is why I like to do yoga in my hotel room because I don't I can be silent. I'm kind of I don't meditate, but it, it's kind of a Zen-like thing to focus on my day and what, what I'm going to be doing by doing exercise in silence. So that is, that's really important. The other thing is early to bed. <laughs> I do everything early. I go, go to bed early, wake up early, eat breakfast early, eat lunch early. You know, I'm ready for bed by eight o'clock at night most, most nights. Great. Now, you've written, you know, 11 books and people know you now, but at what point did it all come together for you? What was that turning point in your life or, or career? So I think we already, you already identified it. It was the time that you heard, you first encountered me, Tats. Yeah. It was, it was back in 2007. And in June of 2007, the new rules of marketing and PR, the first edition came out and it sold like crazy because it was the, it, it did. It sold like crazy thousands of copies a week for, for years because it was the first book that identified the whole social media marketing phenomenon. And, and for my work, it was a rocket ship. I was on, I was already on my own. I wasn't not, I was not working for a company. Yeah. So I was running my own business, but I had prim primarily been doing consulting prior to that. And then all of a sudden, and with some speaking, 10 speaking gigs a year kind of thing. But then with the publication of that book, all of a sudden I was getting dozens of inquiries for speaking a week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was on television news and I was quoted in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I mean, it was huge. It was big. It just really happened quickly. And so it was fabulous. And for about a year, I was a little bit too big for my too big for my britches um, to use that phrase. Mm. I let it go to my head in some negative ways, mm. and it took me a couple of it took me about a year to realize that you know this is ridiculous. Just be humble, be nice to people, treat everybody with respect. If if something goes wrong when you're delivering a speech, laugh it off and don't get mad at the at the technology people. And if somebody misquotes you in, in a publication, just politely point it out and ask them to correct it. So um, fortunately, I didn't become an obnoxious celebrity type as a result of figuring out very quickly that I was developing some bad habits around. I mean, I wouldn't call myself famous, but in my world, I'm well known, but I'm certainly not famous. And but. I did let some of my notoriety go to my head and I fixed that problem a long time ago. So I'm glad, in some ways, I'm glad that I had instant fame because I was able to come to grips with it and then sort myself out. That's very nice. Now, is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? <laughs> very good question. <laughs> no, it was a great interview. But what I'd like to add is this, idea that we've been talking about fanocracy, this idea of making human connections. The other benefit is that if you have a good sense of what you, you yourself love to do, I mentioned earlier, I love to surf. I love to go to see live music. And I do those things with my friends. And those are some of the most powerful human connections I have with my best friends doing the things that we love together. 
the more you do that, the richer a life you have. And the more you do that, the more you recognize how you can make other people's lives richer through your work. And I'm as much as I was convinced that 12 years ago, the ideas of social media would be huge in business, I'm also now convinced that the idea of of fandom and developing a fanocracy can be huge in business. And what I think is so cool about it is that it's fun. And and it sure beats working when you can <laughs> create fans, right? And let them tell their story for you. David, thank you so much. I was a big fan before. I'm an even bigger fan of you now. Thank you. Oh, that's so kind of you to say, Touch. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.